it gave me that focus and then because I had people that they knew a path you know no one's gonna help you walk that path but they knew a path and if you feel like you want it for yourself then so he said if we decide to leave you know we'll be off the team which was fine because I knew that I wanted something else Welcome to the Athlete EQ Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Searcy, and today I sit down with Jaflo Larkai, international basketball scout, two-time member of Team GB, four-time Basketball Japan League winner, and former number eight for the London Lions. In this episode, which is divided into two parts, Flo and I speak of early childhood influence of Jimmy Rogers and the others at the Bricks and Topcats, the dedication and determination it takes to get to the U.S. to play and go to school, and what it's like to play in Japan, a nation not necessarily recognized for the sport of basketball. We get real about the pressure that comes from injury, and Flo speaks hard truth about believing in yourself as a young player. So yeah, I want to say thank you very much for sitting down and taking some time to talk about your life as a basketball player as it has come to be yeah. i like to start with something kind of silly um what's that what's something that's in your flat or in your house that whenever you see it like makes you smile or makes you laugh makes me smile um yeah. a picture um, I don't remember taking it, but it's a black and white picture of me, my mom, and my brother, my older brother. I might have been about three years old, I think, in the picture. Um, and it was just the smiles on our faces, and we all like were rocking these like little afros. Um, and I think it, my mom had told me it might have been one of the the last pictures my dad had taken. Mm. Yeah, the significance of that. I just love the smiles on our faces. Don't like the purity in it. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. How, uh, getting, getting to the sport, getting to the game, mm-hmm. um, you're from South London. Yes. How in the world did you end up a basketball player? <laughs> um, you know what? The first time I was exposed to it, um, we, we came back from a little party, like Ghanaian culture, they always have like little house parties and the parents never leave the kids at home. They always bring them. So they brought us and then you'll stay in one room with all the older kids. And I remember we came back from one of those and then my brother had the TV on and then basketball was on, but I didn't know what it was. I said, yo, what's that? Like, oh, that's basketball. And I'm like, well, who's that? Who's that? So, oh, that's Michael Jordan. And that was quite pippin. I didn't know who, who they were. It was just highlights that were being played. And I was about, I think, seven, eight was the first time. I didn't really care for, for basketball, like, at all. Like, I was, you know, trapping for running around, you know, cartoons, toys, that kind of stuff, until I was about, let's say... 12, I believe, 12 years old, 13, 12 years old. They built basketball courts um, in my area. So they built these courts there and all the kids would all gather around. And we were just, I wasn't very good. And 
the older kids would laugh at me. Um, but you know, it was okay. I didn't care. I was watching my older brother and those guys. And I remember we had um, basketball in P class for the first time. And I remember we had a teacher called, um, it was Mr. Obridge, his name was. And he was talking about shooting the ball. And he might have made like six shots in a row or swishes. And he was talking about when you make a swish, it always rolls back to you. And from then I was like, yo, <laughs> was like, no, this is, this is, you know what I mean? That was, it, it got me. And it, it, it did help a little bit that I was always a little bit taller. I can't say that much. Like Twelve years old, I was five foot seven. It's not that tall, but I guess for most of um, my friends and stuff, I was always the taller one. So, you know, in, you know, in London, where England, we start high school at 13. So when I got to high school, that's when I was just falling in love with it because I had a, a bunch of friends who, you know, we were all into sports. But then there was a few of us that just really liked basketball. So that's, and that's all we would talk about and all we would do. I wasn't playing like as much, but I remember I was playing basketball on TV and I was... Um, collecting stickers, uh, cards, posters, um, just everything. I remember my, my auntie went to America for the first time and she brought back like this, you know, bootleg Orlando Magic jersey because I, I love Shaq. Shaq was... Oh, yeah. It started with that, just my first exposure to it and then seeing it. And then that's how I started falling in love with it. And then you're a product of the Brixton Top Cats, are you not? Yeah, yeah, Brixton Top Cats. Um, mm. Before that, I was going to, this was when I was like 15, I was going to a club called Chessington Wildcats. Okay. And, and my mom just hated how I would get home after midnight daily after training sessions and stuff. And then she just said, you can't play basketball anymore, this is it. I remember we had this big argument. And I was like, oh, I just, I found something I loved and now you want to take it away from me? My mom. And then I was just like, I remember we had this big conversation. And then I said, you came to this country because you wanted a better life for yourself and for your future kids. I want that for myself. Like, I found something that I really want to do. Let me do this. And then we came to a compromise. And then she said, okay, but you need to find something that's closer. So one of my good friends, I said, yo, there's a club and it's only in Brixton, which is like, half an hour away. I was like, okay, so mom, can I go to Brixton instead? She was like, oh, it's close. So I started going to Brixton when I was about 15. And that's like the first time I'd like seen that many players, that quality, you know, people that looked like me that was all like involved in, in the game. But that was the first time, like it, the people that cared, you know, Jimmy, you know, rest in peace, Jimmy. He cared, like you could see it. He wanted to help you. And um, another coach, great coach, Jabbar, he, I don't know, he'd see you and then he would come and he would talk to you and connect with you in a way. And then that feeling just did it. And that's what led on to my relationship with uh, Lawal at the time. My friend was like, yo, come meet my friend. He's like, yo, he's the same height as you. So this time I'm like six foot five. He said, oh, he's only 12. 
There's no way he's six five and twelve. So we went out, introduced ourselves, we stood back to back. We said, "Wow, okay, you are the same height." And then it's a, that's how the relationship started. Just yeah, right. And you want to play ball, me too. And so you talk a little bit about Jimmy and you know Jimmy Rogers, and you know, talk about like the influence that mm-hmm. that had on like the early part of you know your life because i mean truthfully when you know you're between 12 and 18 there's a there's a whole lot of options that people can get into positive and negative i guess you could say what what influence did jimmy rogers have on you as a as a person he was an authoritative figure who would hold you accountable Mm. you have somebody like that that will hold you accountable and cared as well, it made you not want to veer off to the other stuff. Like you want to make him proud because he'll be on you so tough. But then when you did something great, he was your biggest supporter as well. You know? And so it was that it was that toughness and positive reinforcement that it became addictive and you just wanted to do more and more and more and more of it. You know? And I would go to Jimmy's house, you know, and he just give us talks and you know, little nuggets and then you get to know him as a person and you know him and some of the other people that were around would they'll show you because the thing that I think a lot of youth don't get is we got shown a different route he was shown that and it was just fortunate that our passion lied in basketball and we saw it as a path to somewhere, because in Brixton they produced people that went somewhere with the sport. You know, whether it was not playing professional, but playing professional, going to the States, high school, college, there was a, a, a pathway that we could see you know, following in the footsteps. There was a moment where you decided, you know what, I want to go to the US yeah. and play. You know, yeah. go to camp, go yeah. to go to college. Yeah. Tell me about that moment. Oh, I'd always felt it because I knew some of the older guys that had gone. Right? So my plan was I need to get to where they got to. Brixton helped because my friend introduced me to Brixton. This was in 1996, which I'm my age here. He gave me a magazine. It was a slam magazine. It was the rookies. Kobe Bryant was on the cover. There's other guys. There. I didn't know who they were. So I said, Yo, who's this guy with, um, with the Adidas but with no socks? Oh, that's Kobe Bryant. I'm like, how old is he? Oh, he's only 17. I said, like, what? He's only a few years older than us. Like, how did, how did he? And then my friend knew, like, yeah, you have to get the college scholarship. I said, you think we could do that? He said, yeah, if we put the work in. So, that got me from 16, I believe, 15, 16, into it more. I was like, boom, I need to get a scholarship. What do I need? My family doesn't have the money to pay for school, so I need to get there another way. So I focused way more in school. You know, this is where I was, became like, you know, senior student, school council, my grades improved, stayed away. I wasn't going to no kind of house parties. I wasn't dating no girls. Um, it gave me that focus and because I had people that, they knew a path 
you know, no one's going to help you walk that path, but they knew a path, and if you feel like you want it for yourself, then, then you could take those steps. I actually had a chance to go to the States was one of, the, one of my teammates on Brixton, he said, yo, there's an AU tournament that we can go there for exposure. I was like, yo, I want to go. Like, let's, let's do this. But it was coming up to playoff time in, uh, when I was playing for Brixton. And <laughs> I must have been 17, 18 at the time. And then Jimmy said, you know, he didn't think I was ready. Um, he didn't want us to leave because we was in the season. And he said, if we decide to leave, you know, we'll be off the team. Uh, but I wanted for myself. So oh. I was like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm off the team then. Like, so he said we couldn't, you know, practice, you know, no more games which was fine because I knew that I wanted something else. Me and my friend went to, went to the States and went to the AU tournament and got a little bit of exposure. We just got to see, you know, test our talents to get out against, you know, who we thought were, you know, possible gods, you know, other Americans, that kind of thing. And then um, that same friend, some months later in the summer, he said that there's a, an exposure camp in New Jersey. You know, obviously it costs money and all these things. So I started working at um, Sainsbury's, big Sainsbury's, um, not too far from where I was, replenishing shelves to save up money for my flight and for the camp. And uh, I got there and the first couple of days, like, I didn't do too well. And they, they rank you and they put me in a lower division. And I remember I felt so embarrassed and like ashamed of myself for until the next day when I was playing with my team in that lower division and I sort of dominated like the entire day. And I remember like the next morning when I went to find my team, coaches came up and they apologized. Oh, we were with you in the wrong position, sorry. We don't put you over in the higher division. So you put me in that higher division. Um, and we ended up winning the, uh, the tournament at that camp. And I won most improved player. And then that's when I started getting division one offers and high school offers. And I was like, wow, okay, I'm, maybe I, I am actually, I might be all right. I might be able to do something like, I might be able to get that scholarship that I already dreamed of. And then, yeah, as I started from there, from that when somebody gave me that way, and I just snatched it and ran with it. What's it like? Because you were playing, you were playing in England, and you know the the talent pool is shallower, shallower, shall we say, in that not a lot of people play basketball here in England. I mean, that's yeah. you know, in in the UK, that's just facts. There's other sports that people are more obsessed with. Yeah. And then you go to the U.S. and the talent pool is suddenly as deep as the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. How, how did you deal with suddenly going from probably being in the top part of the pool in the U.K.? And I'm not talking just like at camp, but also like when you went to, you know, to, to high school in in the U.S. and college in the U.S. to suddenly being one of many top talents? 
Yeah, I I learned um, quickly, actually. As I said, like, it always helps when there's people that can show you the way. So I remember I was talking to some coaches. My AU coach had me talk with some scouts and coaches that were at the, um, the AU tournaments. And then he, they, was, they started telling me about some of the intangibles that can help you stand out from other players. You know, academics um, was always a big one. Um, posture, um, vocal tone, um, then there's body language on the court, you know, the smaller things, because that's what sets you apart. So I started focusing a lot on some of the smaller things, made sure I walked where I spoke, where I was energetic on the court. And I trained certain things that, okay, as someone of my size, I was about six foot seven at the time, should be able to do. So if those guys are athletic, then I have to be as athletic. I start building um, the smaller things until they compiled it into something larger where I could compete. I may not have had the best skills, but I knew that from a physical standpoint and a mental toughness standpoint, I was on par. And then I knew that if I keep working then the skills would catch up, but I made sure I got some of those other intangibles down that can se- separate me from anybody else who's six foot seven or whatever at the time. Yeah. Yeah, those intangibles are really, they're, they kind of sneak up on you. Like nobody thinks you have to speak well or you have to walk, you know, with good posture. People, they're like, well, well that, that does make a difference when I'm playing on the court. Mm-hmm. So I love that you've brought up that, you know, there are the, those things that you, like you call them those intangibles um, yeah. that you need to focus on. That's really yeah. important. It, it applies to what I do now. You know, I don't play anymore, but I'm an international scout. And that, the, those are the things that you look at. Because when we have, we have our conference calls bi-weekly, and if you hear, if you ever fly on the wall and you listen to the things that we're talking about when it comes to players, it is these little nuances, these intangibles that separates like what player that you're looking to, to take or play somewhere. Like it's, and you know, at the camps that I, I do attend, these are the things that I talk to players about because they don't know. Yeah. Like, they, don't, they don't know about the level of competition. And it's out there, like, that's the biggest thing because a lot of them get fooled because they're in this cocoon you know, where everybody reinforces, oh, you're the best, you're the greatest, da 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 are not realizing, you know, once you get out of that, you know, that, that bubble you're in, that grows and grows and grows and grows. Yeah, very much so. I believe there was a moment after that exposure camp you were talking about that, you know, you started getting offers from D1 schools. Yeah. You didn't go immediately after that, did you? No, no. I, you know, if I'm honest, the way some people had spoke, and even Jimmy had said before, well, there was one practice that wasn't, I wasn't doing too well. And after practice, Jimmy was like, you know, what's wrong? And I was like, I don't know, man. Just listen to too much things. I need to just focus on me and my game. And then Jimmy joking, I was like, game? 
So you ain't got no game, son. <laughs> <laughs> it was hilarious, but I was like, I was like, damn, damn, Jimmy. <laughs> Reality <laughs> check. Yeah, I was like, wow. So I'd always, like, I work, 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 because I never thought I was good enough. And then when I went over there, and then I got these things straight away, it was only like three, it was three division, or two or three division ones. I, honestly, I didn't think I was good enough. Yeah, I didn't, you know, and then um, I don't know why. And it's 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 been something that has, I've struggled with, you know, internally a lot. It's like, it's been a constant battle. But I didn't think I was good enough. But I had an opportunity to go to a high school, and I was like, okay, let me go to this high school. Let me get better so I can come in and make an impact. But this school that I went to, the Gunnery in Washington, Connecticut. And I went in with big promise. But Lord have mercy, this school, it wasn't a basketball school. But it was good because in the sense that I was playing, I was practicing with these guys and then basketball came around. But we weren't training enough. It wasn't enough for what I wanted. So me and my friend, we would, maybe like four times a week, three times a week, we would, I wake him up six, five thirty in the morning. Like, yo, let's go to the gym, and we'll just do something. We'll play two one on one, shoot, right, lift a little bit. We'd always go in there to just do supplemental work. You know, and um, I made sure that my grades were on point. But as the season went on, all of those schools, I lost them, and I started getting Division Two and Division Three offers. And I felt like. I felt like a bum. Like, I really felt like a bum. And I took the, off, uh, the trip to, uh, it was either D2 or D3 school, and then they, they rolled out the red carpet for me. I didn't sit well with me. I was like, man, I didn't come all this way and work this hard. And I felt like I was settling and like, I just, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it, you know. But I was like, I don't have any other offers. Like, what can I do? Until I got a, there was a phone call. So when I came to the States for that first AU tournament, this is before the tournament in New Jersey, I played against um, Loire's team. He had already left before I had gone. And then he had another AU tournament in Connecticut, and his AU coach contacted my coach because it was like, yo, um, Loire's friends, Flo and Lake, you know, they, they want to join our team for this you know, end of season AU tournament. I was like, hell yeah, I want to go. So we went to that. And obviously, Lawal was highly recruited already as a sophomore. And there's a bunch of coaches there for him. And I just I showed out. Again, like he was throwing me alley-oops, you know, going and rebounding, all these kind of shots and all these kind of things. And I got the Division One offers back. Hmm. Just... The work I'd put in, even though I'd lost it during the season, that one, that one opportunity, I stayed ready. And I got it on a, a two, two or three day um, tournament in Connecticut. I remember that. And then James yeah. the Letters and Delaware came back, and then Ryder came back, and, and LaSalle was the squad I ended up going to, the first squad I ended up going to. They called and they drove like five six hours just to watch me play two and two and go through a little workout and then 
ended up going there after going on a visit and just feeling like this could be home. So, yeah, it started like that. Yeah. yeah. What, what strikes me there is about, you know, this word that you, gets thrown around quite a bit of, of exposure. Yeah. If you're not at a school that is known for basketball, yeah. or if you're not at a club that is recognized, or you know the chances of you making it are um, lower. Yeah, and you have to like you know when that opportunity to to you know go down and play in that tournament again, you were like, hell yes, I'm going to take that chance. Yeah. You have to stay ready. And you want to be in a position where you're ready. You want to give yourself the best chance to be successful. Yeah. Listening to your story and listening to some of the stuff that you, you've said already, I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm struck at how you have, I, w- I don't want to say like let emotions drive you, but how you use them effectively yeah. to, to, to push yourself say a little bit more about how you can kind of harness those to your advantage, because in some cases, you know, emotions get in the way. Um, but like if you've got a fear of failure and it makes you nervous and then you can't play, but yeah. you seem to have maybe figured that, figured that trick out. I struggle, I struggled with it, but the only way I can deal with the emotion of fear or failure or something like that is what if I don't? What if I don't try? Mm. It's, and you have to feel like how, like what can I live with? You know, can I look myself in the mirror every day knowing that I didn't try and, and can I can I live with that narrative, that lie? You know what I mean? I could lie to other people all day but to lie to yourself is and that's difficult. Mm. And like the pain of failure, the pain of regret hurts more. It's always hurt more for me. But the not trying, the letting things get the best of you, it's, I couldn't do it because, I, you know, I'm not, I wasn't doing everything for myself. I, would, I spoke to those people that work, that would hold me accountable. Like, I, I want to make this happen. So I put myself in the air the space of those people and I'd say certain things to to those people so they can hold me accountable because you want to always try and find the easy way out or to neglect things but if you stay true to yourself and you're around people that will force you to stay true to yourself you know, they won't let you veer off hmm. yeah. and you I'm hearing that you won't let yourself off the hook either no I can't. Yeah. I, I, I have a, I'm I supposed to one of my guys about this. I have a, a, con, a conversation with myself all the time. The past you, your present you, and your future you. So, you know, once you have a, you know, a, a passion and that passion turns to your purpose, then you always look like if I don't try, if I fail, if I, if I quit now, what would the younger version, the optimistic one say? Mm. You know, 15-year-old me talking to the 19-year-old me, like, yo, what are you doing? Where, where, where did you go? What did you, huh? You quit? Why would you quit? Why did you stop? Like, that that kind of thing. And then the older version of me is always like, oh, man, you worked hard. I appreciate you. 
you know, busting your ass for that. You know, that is that conversation I've always had. And that's with anything, you know, any injury, any. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned injured. Yeah. Um, you've been injured a number of times. Time, yeah. Twice. Do you ever get used to it? Yeah. <laughs> I remember, I'll tell you this, before we get into the injuries, the, I remember when I was home for the summer, I uh, was training with my brother's trainer in central London, and he was having me doing the <clears throat> different movement chains and all that kind of thing. I remember, like, after like a couple weeks of training with him, I was just in the house, and this was after I had, like, a real bad back and side to come when I was in Japan. And I remember, like, I'd been over squatting, and there was no pain. Like, not one, not, not one creak, no nothing. And I had tears coming down. And I was like, yo, but I was so used to some sort of pain or discomfort, it just became normal. And I told him, and he joked about it because he didn't understand, like, what I go through. You know, you don't know, like, every day, when, or most days when I go for a practice, like, or a game, I'm taking high strength painkillers. You know, every day is like, okay, I've got to stretch for 20 minutes before practice, which starts in two hours just to get ready. And then when practice is done, I'm icing and I'm stretching for 25 minutes afterwards to be prepared for the next day. And like, just to feel no pain. Like, I remember I used to get jealous of like regular people. <laughs> doesn't hurt when you walk, like you fit the... Like, <laughs> you know, like, yo, you know, I chose this life. So it's like, you know, the rewards from playing and traveling and meeting people far outweigh like the pain. I always said, you know, when I'm retired, then I let my body heal. But, you know, whilst I'm doing it now, just, just deal with it. Because at the end of the day, what I always felt, you know, people don't care about the pain. What I care about is the performance. So as long as you perform, keep that pain to yourself. Mm. Yeah. Is that fair to ask, though? It's not, but, you know, it's, it's life. I mean, I can ask somebody to care and to feel, empathize, sympathize, but, you know, they, they will for, what, two minutes and then go about their day, and I'm still left to deal with it. So it's best, you know, to just... You know, do what you're supposed to do. I'll talk about it after the fact. You know what I mean? Or, but I always, and I kind of liked keeping it clandestine until after till it was done. Mm. Like I remember one season in um, Japan, my foot was hurting all year, and I was icing, stem, um, acupuncture heat treatment, massages, kinesio tank, you name it. Oh, pills. I, I just sneak some of the pills out of the, um, the trainer's um, athletic bag. So I take them and to numb the pain sometimes. And at the end of the season, I told the trainer and she just, you know, we took an x-ray and was like, oh, it's nothing like, just, you know, do with it, do with it. So I deal with it for the whole season. At the end of the season, we had another x-ray, but this one was a digital one. And they zoomed in and then the doctor was like, oh, you have a calcification around here that shows that you had a fracture and it healed wrong. So I, I was playing with like a, a microfracture in my foot. 
Injuries are a funny thing because I, I feel like, you know, with, you know, with my own injuries um, as yeah. an athlete or whatever, injuries have a compounding effect on everything else in your life. Or maybe it's the other way around. Everything else has a compounding effect on your injury. I'm not really sure chicken egg, but injuries, they make, they make what you do kind of like a reality check moment of, are you, are you sure you want to do this? Yes. Did you ever have that moment? Are you sure you want to keep doing this? Oh yeah. hundred percent. Um, I mean, I felt that after the ACL tear. I felt oh, that God, yes. after the meniscus tear. And then I felt that after the um, broken hand and the torn bicep, which was the last major injury I had. And each time I trained so hard to get back to a level where I could really compete each time. And I remember like, I was just like, man, if I could just stay healthy long enough, I, I would be killing, I'd be earning more, I'd be doing more, you know. But not staying healthy kept me off the national team. Even though I did play GB for two years, I could have played for more. Not being, not having the staying power to be healthy enough. Then that starts going around. You know, my agent would tell me, oh, this team's something he gets injured. Because there's always like at least one injury every season. Or something, you know, oh, he gets hurt too much. And hmm. you keep reinforcing and what's the reinforcement? The conversation with my younger self. The conversation with my older self. Like, you know what I mean? Like I could, and, and conversations with other people who would always say, the people that live vicariously through who would always say, Oh man, I wish I didn't. I wish I didn't keep going, you know. So you just you just find a way and you keep going. If it hurts, you know what? So what? The pain will go. Pain is temporary. It lets you know you're alive. It's, it's temporary. But it was always like, I didn't want the pain or injuries to stop me. If I was going to stop, it's because I chose to stop. There's two folds to the injury. There's the physical, you know, development, and then there's the psychological one. Very uh, much so. Yeah, I didn't want to lose that battle because I didn't know what else I would do if I just stopped. Mm. You know, I just had everything. And obviously I was good in school and all that kind of stuff, but nothing, nothing grabbed me, nothing pushed me, nothing gave me purpose like basketball did. So. Mm. I'm fascinated, you know, this, this conversations that you've had with, you know, your younger self your, and your, your older self. Yeah. Did you go through that process when it was time to go overseas to Japan? Yeah. Conversation with myself to go to Japan was, part of it was easy, easy-ish, because I'd been in Spain one year, Luckily, I'd broken my hand. Um, <laughs> that's funny. Do I even I want to know how you broke your hand? I was just in practice. It was in practice. Okay, <laughs> like what you do? Yeah, a guy hit me um, and I broke my fourth metatarsal. Um, and I was going to go to Spain again, uh, Argentina. 
I lost out on those opportunities. I was like, damn, man, like, okay. So my agent contacted me. Um, he said there was an opportunity to go. And the reason for that was after my third game back, I was always, my mindset was I need to go to a different place. I had like 27 and 11 or something like that in one game. And I said it to him, and I was like, yo, I'm back. Like, I'm ready. So when he called with that, I remember they called up and the conversation was so short. It was like, we've seen your video um, and you play defense. I'm like, yeah. I mean, can you score? We need a big guy that can score. I said, yeah. You know, could you leave next week? Uh, let me, yeah. <laughs> Just, it was, the opportunity was there. I'm like, man, this could be something, you know? Because where I was, was to me, it was something to others, but to me, it was nothing, you know? Um, but then I made the decision to go because I was like, if I don't go, you know, what's, what's going to happen if I don't? The, the, fear, the fear of the unknown was, was the excitement of the unknown. As a, I can't say fear. The fear of staying, that's yeah. what made me go. You know? I said, yes, yeah. so I left Japan February, February 14th, 2010. And what's life like in Japan? Because... Uh, and this is my, because while I say I am a basketball fan, I am American. So up until I really started looking into it, life did not exist outside the NBA and the NCAA. It's like, oh, yeah. wait, no, there is. But Japan is not a country I associate with basketball. I didn't think so either, but it's the top three country in the sport. Yeah. I went I mean, there. When you realize that, you're like, wait, really? Yeah. Yeah. So what's life for a basketball player like in Japan? Is it crazy? Different cities give different... I thought my first two years, well, I was in Hamamatsu. I played for a team called Hamamatsu Higashimakawa Phoenix. And I lived in a place called Toyokawa. Now, Toyokawa, I remember, like, you could hear goats outside the window at times. I'm sorry, did you say goats, like animals goats? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone had a farm, you know. I mean, the highlight of the week outside of games and practice was going to the grocery store. You know, that was... So all we did was we stayed in the gym. Me and the five, six, well, one of them left, so five of us Americans, we became brothers. We were in the gym working every day. Like, I remember, like, some guys, some friends that I made in Japan, they're like, yo, you guys, like, we see your pictures from practice all the time. You guys are going hard as hell. That's all we did. We had a coach who was like a Bobby Knight, Bobby Knight of Japanese basketball. <laughs> Little guy, uh, Kazu Nakamura, his name, love Kazu. But he would push you to go hard and he would force his Japanese guys to go hard. So everyone, all we did was go hard. So that first two years was purely basketball. And there was no real social life. Like, you know, when it comes to dating and stuff, some guys had their girls, you know, I was a single guy. You know, Skype was my thing to keep in touch with my lady back home. Um, you know, but then when you're single as well, you're not doing nothing, then we might go out, but we play Saturday and Sunday. And we have Mondays off. Tired. After, after a Sunday, the nearest place to go out Nagoya's over an hour's drive fellas do you want to drive after the back-to-back game 
few times we did, and uh, you had a bit of fun, but most of the time, it's like, nah, let's just chill, man. So the first two years was strictly basketball, which is, I think, is why we won. You know, um, we won back to championships. I remember I would use aspects of jealousy to perform on the court. And I say that, like, when we play other teams in better cities, I used to be like, F y'all. And like, you just, you're using all these things to just kill everybody, especially, like, I remember assistant coach, he asked, like, how come, like, that all these guys that went to big schools, like, you're giving them work and you didn't go to a big school yourself. You're not, you weren't a highly recruited player. How is it that you're able to do that? And it was because of that. Because there was anger in it a bit. I remember I started that from um, AAU and... uh, Summer, summer leagues that I played in, where I would size up my opposition, just break them down, like, you know, piece by piece, how they walked, how they moved. And then if they were good, I will just use that, like, you know, you ain't better than me, you ain't this, da, 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 all this stuff in my head. And I'd come out with fire. I would use that as fire. That's why the first two years we were successful. You know, we had great players on my team, don't get twisted. Like, these guys were really good too. And we all pushed each other. So that was Hamamatsu. Then I went to two years in Okinawa, which was, I think, then was like the best time of my career, of my pro life. We only won one championship. But then the next year we won the league and set a record for wins in a row. But it had everything. We, you know, we had packed out um, stadiums, we had a winning record, we were on TV, posters were in like 7-Eleven and all these stores and people asked for your picture and autograph and, you know, we, we traveled in, you know, a little more style and one or two groupies and super fans, you know. Um, and it was just, and plus there was all these military bases there, US military bases. Mm, yeah. So you'll see people that look like you, people that are from the States and we're going to the base and then there's a Taco Bell on the base and you can use American dollars and we're going to the grocery store. So for those two years, it was like, that was, those were probably the best two years. I just felt something with with that team that was just, you know, it was incredible. So that life was, I was so happy I went away. You've been listening to the Athlete EQ Podcast. Thanks for spending some time with us. Please make sure you check out part two of this episode. Also, please take time to download this episode and share it with someone. If you like what you heard, don't hesitate to go back and listen to previous episodes. And don't forget to subscribe for future episodes. For the next several weeks, we are running a contest to determine our Athlete EQ Podcast superfans. To enter download, rate, and comment on this episode. Then take a screenshot and email it to aeqpodcast.contestentry at gmail.com. Entries will be accepted until midnight on the 9th of July, 2020, and our three superfans will be notified at noon the following day. The superfan prizes to be awarded include a Lakers jersey from LeBron James, 
assigned basketball from podcast guest Justin Robinson, and a gift certificate from Nike. Good luck to all our listeners. Last but not least, we'd love to hear what you think. If you have some feedback for us, send us a message to aeqpodcast.feedback at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you in two weeks with another episode.